Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first full episode of Subject Matter Tabletop Season 2. It's here. Eight months finally. later. It's finally happening. If you We're want to deeper explanation about why it's taken us so long listen to the casual catch-up that we did in january it explains it in much more detail we're here to just give you a very brief introduction of the episode before we begin yeah we just wanted to uh present the episode a little bit it's been a while in the making it was an exciting experience to make at the time back may it was an episode of firsts for us um it was our first role-playing game that we yeah. played. We played the tabletop RPG called uh, Jung Shu, Blood in the Banquet Hall, which is designed by Banana Chan and Sen Fung Lim. It's a kind of collaborative storytelling RPG that's set in 1920s Chinatown about a Chinese American or Chinese Canadian, depending on the campaign you're running, family who makes a living by running their restaurant and showing resilience during hard times. And we also played it for the first time ever with more than one expert guest. Mm-hmm. So we had two yeah. guests on this episode. So we ordinarily do quite a bit of preparation for these episodes. I think it was easily quadrupled for this one. It, yeah. it felt like a lot because you have to read a whole book. To do yeah, the role playing game is uh, the rule. It's, it's not a ten page rule book. It's a no. uh, <laughs> triple digit book. <laughs> yes. So we had a lot of fun pre- preparing for it. You'll hear me describe my experience a little bit as GM, uh, game uh, manager. We'll call it um, mm-hmm. for the first time in my my career as a gamer. So I think oh, that's also a big first step. So yeah. lots of firsts for subject matter tabletop here in this episode. Yeah, but I mean, I think we're just really excited to finally be um, publishing it and, and casting it into the world. I think we're both really proud of this episode. I think it's a really good one. And we want to just thank our guests, Heidi and Michelle, for their extreme patience <laughs> with us for getting this out. But I, I know that they were uh, very happy to join us and we all had a re- really great time. And it was fun to listen back to this so many months later and remember that session we had uh, at, on was, campus at yeah. UNC back May, back good last memories. May. memories. Yeah. Well, um, um, get ready, uh, sit yeah. back, relax, That's or right. Buckle you know, up. if you, if you do this while you're exercising or driving, don't sit back and relax too much, you know, yeah. whatever you're doing, feel the burn, check it out. All right. See you later. I actually liked that challenge to the player to go educate themselves. Playing this game is not going to make you non-racist. It's going to show you some things if you thoughtfully engage with it. And I thought that setting that limit on it, to me, was really helpful. My name is Michelle King. I am an associate professor at UNC Chapel Hill in the history department. And I specialize in Chinese history, specifically gender history and food history. I'm Heidi Kim. I'm a professor in the English and Comparative Literature Department, and I also direct the Asian American Center. I work on all kinds of topics, really, in the 20th and 21st century in American literature, including a recent book that was focused on a lot of writing about Chinatown and Cold War political debates. Welcome to Subject Matter Tabletop, the podcast about board games and the subject matter that animates them. I'm Jordan Tynes. And I'm Steve Gotzler. We are here in the Green Law Game Room at UNC, the base of operations for the Critical Game Studies Initiative here in the Department of Comparative Literature, Department of English and Comparative Literature, I should say. Uh, And we are joined today by two amazing guests, Heidi Kim and Michelle King, a literary scholar and historian, respectively, uh, both faculty members here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to Subject Matter Tabletop, Heidi and Michelle. 
So we'll start by just kind of getting you to introduce yourself to the listeners at sort of a deeper level, right? We want you to describe your research in a way, your own way, but perhaps you could help us wrap our minds around the breadth of these overarching fields of Asian American studies, Chinese history, and more specifically how your expertise fits within those broader fields. So I can say right now I'm uh, finishing a book on a cookbook author from Taiwan named Fu Pei Mei, who was known as the Julia Child of Chinese cuisine. Mm. Um, and it'll be out next May 2024, if all goes well. And um, I think one of the things, that, and, and doing food history for me is something new, actually. my first I'm a gender historian, and my first book was about female infanticide in the 19th century. So going to food is something really different. But in writing, in the course of writing this book, what is so apparent is that Food is such an easy way to talk about just about anything and everything um, in society and politics and economics and gender roles and technology and mm -hmm. all kinds of things. So um, to me, it's like when you're talking about food, there really isn't anything you can't talk about with food. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's no surprise that they would set this game, for example, in a Chinese restaurant, mm -hmm. um, as that is the way that many or most you know, North Americans would know about China anything is through a restaurant, their local restaurant um, for non-Chinese people. So. so I know you've written a lot about like this, the notion of culinary regionalism. Mm -hmm. um, Cantonese cooking and cuisine in particular figures kind of centrally in this game. Could you tell us a little bit about what makes Cantonese cuisine distinctive and and or sort of it's what its importance has been to the development historically, especially in North America, as you just mentioned, of the notion of like, quote unquote, Chinese food. Mm -hmm. Sure. So Cantonese cuisine is um, because the province of Canton, which is Guangdong in Chinese, is coastal. It's on the southeast coast of China. A lot of it centers on super fresh seafood. Um, it's kind of lighter tastes um, and uh Freshness is of utmost importance. And Cantonese are also just known in China for eating just about anything and everything. And so tastes in other parts of China are not going to be so eclectic. But um, in Canton, that's where you're in Guangdong, you can find a lot of markets where you can f buy just about any type of thing that you might not even think of as edible. But um, in terms of Cantonese cuisine, another aspect of it that people talk about a lot is because um, Guangdong was the first place that they had a treaty port, um, which eventually became Hong Kong. Um, it also is open to or has had a lot of different foreign influences. So, for example, in Hong Kong, you might have milk tea or curry squares or a number of different food items that um, really do have kind of this colonial background or colonial influence. So I would say it's definitely one of the major culinary regions of China. There are four of them. Um, and this is one of the major ones. And more importantly, it's Cantonese food that most of the rest of the world understands as quote unquote Chinese food, mm -hmm. because it was mostly people from Guangdong province who traveled overseas in the 19th century. And, you know, not just to the United States or Canada, but also literally the rest of the world and brought their, you know, kind of their cuisines with them. So most of what people understand kind of as traditional quote-unquote Chinese food is really Cantonese-influenced food, mm -hmm. including things like chop suey, um, which is not 
wholly an invention of the United States. It is. It does have its roots in China. That's its significance, mostly for. Um, overseas Chinese is that a large preponderance of people with many many generations in the United States or Canada or whatever would be Cantonese, not Mandarin speakers. So it makes sense for a game set in 1920s San Francisco Chinatown to feature that particular region regional food style of cooking. Yep. So prominently. Absolutely. Although I will also say that most. Chinese restaurants in the United States did not serve actual regional cuisines or regional specialties,、mm. but served dishes that would appeal to local customers. That is, you know, non-Chinese customers. So things like chop suey or egg foo young or whatever else.、Um, they're not wholly. They're kind of the hybrid inventions, I、mm. guess, if you want to call them something. Would、yeah. it be fair to say or to suggest that?、Um, I mean, I'm thinking about. You just had mentioned that、uh, one of the things that's distinctive about Cantonese cuisine is it's known for being eclectic. Do you think, aside from the fact of historical migration patterns, is that like tendency towards being eclectic? Was that something that made it amenable to incorporating things that would be sort of non-traditional, just to that made it more appealing? That there was an openness at like the level of cooking philosophy within I, that. I'm not、culture? sure about cooking philosophy at that level. I think more than anything else, among all Chinese immigrants, whether they are in the 19th century or the 21st century, is just a notion of practicality.、Mm-hmm. You're just going to、mm-hmm. cook with whatever the heck you can find locally、mm-hmm. and adjust and adapt your, you know, whatever you're going to make, so that people will buy it. There's like an economic、sure. rationale and、mm-hmm. a practicality to what people are serving. So I'm not sure that there's any more kind of, if anything, the other thing Cantonese cuisine is often known for is kind of medicinal approaches to cooking. So、oh. very interested in incorporating, you know, kind of. Um, different theories about bodies and what makes them healthy, and、mm-hmm. so drinking this kind of soup when you're after you've given birth, or you know having this kind of food or that kind of food, or not this or not that because it's heating or cooling. A lot of people、um, from Guangdong, especially, would be particularly interested in that approach to food. Not that's not true of everywhere in China, but very much so in in Canton. One of the authors who I write about, Jade Snow Wong,、uh, who was very popular in the 1950s. Um, she, in her memoir *Fifth Chinese Daughter*,、uh, when she was in college, she was asked to cook for her dean and some、mm-hmm. guests who、uh, the dean thought would enjoy Chinese cooking. And she has this whole conference with her family about ingredient constraints and equipment constraints, and you know they come up with this whole elaborate plan and. Figure out the dishes that they think she can handle, and I think they send her sister to help her, and、hmm. you know they send a few walks and things like that that she doesn't have at at the college campus, so that she can do this dinner properly, right? But they're so mindful of of what they can and can't do.、Um, and to me, Heidi, I think also that whole like episode in the you know, Fifth Chinese Daughter and Jade Snow Wong's memoir. Really, to me, underscores a really central idea about Chinese food, and that is, it's about family. Like,、mm-hmm. I feel like that more than anything else, more than any kind of food you eat or what you eat or what's on the table, is really so central to the idea of Chinese food. Is the consumption of it in a family setting at a big table? You know, it doesn't have to be a round table with a lazy Susan, but. I feel like a lot of times、um, people get so caught up in what the food is,、mm. we forget about how we're eating it. And、right. to me,、mm-hmm. like Chinese food, you can't really talk or think about it without thinking about family. It's just—I mean, it, obviously, it's possible to do so. But yeah, yeah, but yeah. for me, as a Chinese American, that is a central part that I find missing from a lot of 
cookbooks or whatever is that it's 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 for for me it's never just about the food you know right. it's always yeah. got this familial component yeah. baked into the it the ingredients is only really the tip of the iceberg when we're talking about a food culture right it has so much more to do with how we eat um do you know why that might be the case that we've sort of kind of lost that connection in sort of chinese food chinese food's description in like a like a textbook for instance or a cookbook yes. yeah because when a a a, a let's say mainstream white family goes to a chinese restaurant they encounter it as the at the level of consumer mm-hmm. they're not eating it at someone's kitchen table you know cooked by mom or cooked by grandma or cooked by dad or whoever right there's a different understanding that's true of any culture or any place but in particular to me I've just noticed that you know um, the focus on Chinese restaurants, for example. That's the interesting thing. I'm curious about this game because it obviously it is a Chinese restaurant, but it's a family restaurant. It's That's run right. by a family, mm-hmm. so there's going to be some kind of components in there. And so, to me, uh, I'm sure the you know the uh, the game designers probably did that intentionally that they wanted to involve multi generations, different you know family members and different familial relationships and stuff like that. But and it's um, realistic for the period yeah. for there to be this mm-hmm. kind of a family business. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the writers that you examined in your most recent book about Chinese-American immigrant writers. Heidi, I'm speaking to Heidi now <laughs> for the listeners who can't see me gesturing with my hand. Um, I have to move to a vodcast soon. Yeah, this, um, <laughs> this game's family and food culture and the space of a family-run Chinese restaurant is central to how the game's setting functions. But it's also a narrative game. So it's a game about collaborative storytelling. Um, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more from you about the types of storytelling that one finds in these narratives from particularly the period after the 45 that your book examines, but maybe if there are larger trends in terms of like form and genre that are often employed by writers to capture or represent the experience of immigration and living within these like Chinatown uh, spaces. Well, there's one main thing to keep in mind looking at these narratives and that is the audience that they're aiming for so a lot of these authors especially the ones who got published um, they're aiming for a mainstream white audience so jade snow wong's memoir for example is very much meant for a white and largely female readership Uh, and she had an editor who kind of specialized in those types of narratives so um you know, often they're they're putting forth narratives uh, aimed at acceptance. Um, they're very positive. Uh, they tend to show a lot of good family values. Um, you know, attempting to put forth a lot of overlaps in culture. But often there's also a kind of display of um, the more exotic elements that might draw interest, mm. right? Or that serve to make this narrative more distinct and a little bit interesting for people to pick up. And that's a delicate balance for authors, especially in this time period when there's, um, as I discuss in the book, a lot of scrutiny of Chinese Americans as potential communists and potential infiltrators, mm-hmm. and a lot of scrutiny of immigration status as well. So that's a difficult balance. If you look at the community-facing writing that's in some of the Chinatown newspapers, then depending on the political stance of the editor, some of those editorial columns are really outspoken. Mm. Um, There's a lot of critique 
of racial discrimination, of uh, government policy, of things like that, um, that affect the Chinese American community. So it's a, it's a wildly different tone. And I, mm. I really enjoyed trying to put some of them side by side. Mm. Interesting. I think this game is maybe doing similar things with its use of horror. Um, like drawing from a particularly familiar and successful like general audience game theme um, to kind of engage players in a more thoughtful and intentional consideration of a historical time and historical space and cultural identity. That's a, that's a, that's a speculation. Uh, I'm not attributing designer intent here. But uh, it seems to me that there's a part of like, a part of that happening here to sort of like incorporate things that might be more exotic or interesting to get people into the game. Like, oh, zombies, Zhang Shu. Like, oh, that's cool. I've seen these movies from the 80s. Let's play this game. But then you sit down and read the book and it's actually like quite serious and sort of um, attempting to be quite responsible in the way that it treats this and, can, you know, hails players in, in their treatment of it as well. So, yeah, I read the historical section with a lot of interest, and I thought mm -hmm. they did a great job at trying to pack in yeah. as much history as they could yeah. in a book that has to be relatively short and readable. Um, I also thought it was really impressive that they included short histories of, of so many different Chinatowns, because mm -hmm. there were a lot of differences, and there were differences in migration, and there were political differences, and um, all of those things, you know, they they often get kind of swept aside sure. under the assumption of this kind of blanket Chinese mm -hmm. or Chinatown mm -hmm. identity. Even some of the regional differences that Michelle's pointing to around food, uh, those those are all important. So it's really interesting for me because I am not, a, a, I don't play this kind of game. I like other kinds of board games that rely on luck mostly <laughs> with oh. my kids. But <laughs> I love board games, but, but I don't, uh, I've never really done a role-playing board game before. And to me, the really interesting idea or the complicated idea is this idea of purposely inhabiting roles of a Chinese family by non-Chinese players. Because presumably, you know, the designers don't just want Chinese or Asian Americans to play this right. game. They want everybody to play it. So... It's a really, I think, interesting and tricky dance. And, and also the idea of game playing in general, like what is that going to bring a person that, say, me as a historian reading a history book would not do? Like what different kind of understanding or experience would somebody have encountering this material in this form versus a movie or a, you know, a, a novel or a historic, you know, a historical mm -hmm. study or whatever else. So for me as a historian, sometimes it's like a little hard to, 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 to go beyond what I'm used to seeing as kind of a, a particular approach to his, obviously as a historian, you know, we don't make up facts or whatever. And so, um, so it's really interesting to think, huh, how might, for example, my students experience this and come away perhaps with a different understanding of that period? Mm -hmm. Or are they going to have a lot of like, Misperception. I'm not talking about zombies, but just about all that context well, and yeah. all that stuff. That's so. that's something that I'd really actually like to hear from you more about, both of you, this idea of how a game can constrain a player's ability to revise history in potentially problematic ways and potentially um, ways that sort of liberate certain players who have maybe experienced the negative parts of the histories that we're reading about in these in these books in these rule books but how the game already maybe is communicating this to you by reading those sections for instance on the different chinatowns sort of taking them out of the sort of contemporary 
experience of a Chinatown, right? They're, they're almost like theme parks for people who are touring these, these, these spaces, right? For, for non-Chinese Americans, you know, visiting San Francisco Chinatown as someone who grew up in San Francisco myself, right? Uh, and that was a place that like tourists wanted to visit, right? And they, they didn't have a sort of like personal experience of that. It was very much so the sort of surface level of that. Right. And already I'm reading this rule book and engaging with that space in ways that I had even as a, as a resident who visited there fairly often, didn't have that experience of, right? I, it, t- talking about the various temples that are built in the San Francisco Chinatown, and I immediately went, like, do I remember seeing that? I, you know, I, do, I, do I have a sort of, like, mm-hmm. understanding of that space in that way at all? And um, I'd be curious to hear from you all about sort of how your maybe expectations of a game like this might, or, a, or even a rule system might limit our ability to encroach on sort of the, the history of the space in a, in a problematic way. Well, I've been thinking about this a lot from the point of view of writing a game, which is something mm. that I would like to do. And um, I think the, the key there is a word that you said, which is constraints. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in playing a game and in inhabiting the roles of the various character, I mean, I come at this from an English professor uh, perspective. So, you know, oftentimes a lot of what we're looking for is an understanding of narrative. Um, But I also do teach very historically, and I look to make people understand the context in which authors and sometimes their historical characters are operating. So you want to understand, I think, and and put forth in the game the kind of constraints that are there. And that gets really interesting in games that are specifically bringing in um, ethnic communities, racial discrimination, um, discriminatory laws uh, of the various times, because then your players are forced to operate around those constraints, right? Mm -hmm. So I would like to write an educational game about the Japanese-American incarceration Mm. during Mm. World War II, which is one of my research specialties. So what are the constraints in that game? Well, they're not going to somehow play their way out of going to camp, right? That's Mm -hmm. that's just not a thing that's going to happen. And they're also going to have to have a lot of the realistic constraints that people had on them at the historical time, right? Here, uh, with this game, you know, this this is an immigrant family with a family business, and they're also operating in a society in which Chinese people are pretty much confined to these enclaves and mm. face a lot of challenges even within them, let alone anywhere else. They can't just, you know, find a zombie in their banquet hall and pick up and move. That's not an option, right? right? right they can't right. just they can't just sell the business and go, you mm-hmm. know, buy a farm somewhere right. else. They've got particular skills, you know. Um, they can't just go back to China, right? There are constraints there too. Maybe they don't have the money for the fare. Maybe there's a political situation there that makes it undesirable. Mm. So to me, those are the things that you really hope uh, from an educational perspective that maybe interacting with the game can do um, in ways where, you know, uh, not that you can't do it with other things, but that would be the work that I would probably do in the classroom, right? As pointing out to students, let's say with a novel, well, okay, you know, this is the path they take. Why is that? And mm-hmm. that that's narrative analysis. And with a game, I think you hope that it comes out a little bit differently. So I thought, see, I'm as again, I'm not I don't play these kinds of role-playing games 
I've never played one before. But when I read about the X card idea and you explained the X card idea to me that, that you get to touch this card and rewind the game essentially to some earlier point at whatever point you would like to kind of take it back to, I thought, huh, that's interesting because in real life, there's no X card. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to rewind anything. If somebody says something, mm -hmm. you know, discriminatory to you or does something to yeah. you, you just live with it. And in a sense, like the idea that we can, it's interesting because there is this possibility in kind of rewriting what someone has said. But in a sense, part of the game should be learning that, you know, stuff happens and you can't take it back or you can't, mm. you don't get to redo those things. They just, you know, kind of happen. So it's a, that's why I think it's a really interesting dance where so much of that, I, I, I you know, kind of skimmed some of, I didn't read the whole book, but skimmed to that explanatory setup where they're trying and wanting people to kind of inhabit and have this experience, but then at the same time needing so many rules and guidelines for how not to offend people and how not to like speak in a Chinese accent or whatever. Like there's just a lot of really interesting kinds of constraints that to me, I mean, I've not played the game before. I only just, you know, riffled through that book, but it seems like, huh, that's interesting because mm -hmm even the creation of the game kind of presents all these conundrums and, you know, so yeah. they obviously grappled with those things. But my first reaction really on seeing the X card was like, huh, well, in real life, we don't get X yeah, cards. Yeah, we don't yeah, get to do a redo. Mm -hmm. Somebody says something, it's there, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. I think a couple of things stand out to me from the, from those comments. Uh, the X card in particular, I think, is, is about the players, right? But there's also this element of like non-player characters. And so I think the game's trying to encourage, and it also has very, at various points in the rulebook, like, hey, if this doesn't sound fun or interesting, you shouldn't play it. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunities mm -hmm. for people to say, hey, you know what, this isn't, if this doesn't sound like a good time or it doesn't sound interesting, cool. Like we don't want to force people to engage with topics or subject matters that make them uncomfortable or feel unsafe. But yeah. at the same time, this game, it says you need a Chinese player at the table, especially if you're going to yeah. record, right? You, Chinese American. Right, yeah. Chinese American. You purposely invited us. We're Chinese American. You wouldn't be doing no, this I'm with... not. Oh, so I'm sorry. <laughs> See, that's a clarification not that needed to pass. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Heidi's Korean-American, sorry. Um, I totally made that assumption. But I mean, not that assumption. I knew that, but... Um, but in that sense, I think there's a lot of complicated mm, things because yeah. like now these players are invited unless they're the ones doing the invitation because mm. of their ethnicity, right? To yeah. kind of lend the authenticity to the gameplay or whatever. And it's like, this oh. is a, this is a question I ask my students who are studying game design. And I think it would be an important question to ask you all as a sort of connection to how you all see your own research and how it is being communicated to a contemporary audience. Because this is research into a historical time period. There are not just zombie fantasy horrors. There are real horrors at play in this historical time period for the people who are inhabiting the characters we are about to inhabit, right? How do you walk, how do you recommend we think about this dance? Uh, this idea of having people experience the full horror of that time period through the act of play, is that appropriate on one end of the spectrum? And on the other end of the spectrum, do we instead just completely revise the history so that folks who have perhaps experienced remnants or even full-blown sort of new iterations of that same horror today, like where do we, where do we settle in that in terms of game design? How do we, how do we 
create a responsible representation of that historical time period that is accessible, but also not just sort of reinstilling sort of the experience of those horrors for people who maybe experience them on a daily basis. Part of that, I think, is in the apparatus that they've given. I think the book and the history and the kind of um, context that they're trying to wrap into it. I don't know the scenarios yet, but I, you know, I think that narrative can play a big role there. I did also really like one thing that they did in the book, which was to say, don't be Orientalist. And, and it'll improve your life in so many ways outside <laughs> right, of right. this game. It's not just about following uh, the rules yeah. in the game. But, yeah. yeah, but also, if you don't know what that is, maybe go find a book and read about mm-hmm. it. And I, I actually liked mm-hmm. that challenge to the player to go educate themselves that, like, th- this playing this game is not going to make you non-racist, mm-hmm. right? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's going to show you some things if you thoughtfully engage with it. And mm-hmm. I thought that setting that limit on it to me was really helpful. Um, mm-hmm. As far as including the, the, the instruction to include a Chinese or Chinese American player, especially for recording, um, what do you think about that, Michelle? I mean, to me, that means, I think they're concerned about accents because it says recording specifically, right? Not, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's the, the audio of having mm. somebody speaking in a, I don't know, I guess you can imagine it, but I mean, that's the tension that I see through the whole thing is like, who is this for? You know, on on the one hand, in some parts of that book, it seems like they're writing for Chinese Americans or other Asian Americans. And in other points of the book, the whole premise is that you're inviting people to the table that haven't had this experience or, you know. So I think it's just a really interesting kind of tension that they try to manage through the different rules and stuff like that. But um but I thought it was, I also think it's interesting too, because this is not, while this, the setting is historical and the restaurant and all that, the outcome is not like, do we get killed by zombies? Do we win? Right. But it's different from what you were describing with the Japanese American incarceration, where you don't want people to be able to choose out of the camp. You want that to be right. That's part of the point. But here, I don't know, like, because it's zombies and it's open ended, it could go one way or another. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's just a different, um, so it, it may be the point is simply to exist in that milieu for a while and see what it's like, you know, whether you win or not or turn, get turned into zombies. I'm curious to know if, like, we get turned into zombies. Mm-hmm. but I hope not. <laughs> no. You probably won't. <laughs> I but. think another layer to add to this that might be clarifying for context is when I read this, um, this notice at the front of the book, I actually read this as speaking more to the sort of media, eco, media, excuse me, media ecosystem which surrounds role-playing games today, uh-huh. which is there's a, a big um, sort Twitch of like streams. prevalence of streaming, oh, uh, what's called like actual plays. Mm-hmm. So we could do, if we had a Twitch stream rather than a podcast, we're like today, this week, we're doing an actual play of Zhang Shu. And so it's saying, if you're going to get on camera and record this game mm-hmm. for your content stream, mm-hmm. please make an effort to right. include at least one person who is Chinese American and in one of the roles um, because those shows are very popular and they become like, they're often the people who produce them. Pe- mm-hmm. They have like backgrounds in dramatic arts and performance. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they like enjoy taking on roles and acting and performing. Right. So it's almost like a casting dictum, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Um, though of course these things like pronunciation and other stuff like that is important, but the way they phrase mm-hmm. it here is about especially being on camera and they're talking about representation being important on camera. Well, uh, but it, it does, you know, at the beginning it says, mm-hmm. go for it. Play at home with your group of friends. And it's okay if, if you're all not Chinese, American, Canadian. So I'm interested in whether or not your research 
sort of informs the sort of responsibility of the Chinese American in that scenario Steve just described, right? Is the person being asked to participate yeah, in the stream? That, that, seems like, that seems like a, a, a sort of a, a, not a, not a simple ask, right? right. It, it is a complex ask and it, and it is almost like giving a lot of responsibility to a person that may not want that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's anything in your research that sort of kind of connects to that idea of the sort of contemporary experience of somebody in a position like that. Well, that, this is a big debate, right? Because it depends on the role that you see that person taking. On the one hand, if you're looking at it from the point of view of representation, then uh, you know this is an effort to ensure that there's some representation, that there are more opportunities for Asian Americans uh, in this kind of play and um, also in this kind of income stream. So uh, that's very much in line with current efforts. Um, and when I say current, I mean, you know, in the last 25 years and even before then. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if that person is supposed to be there playing some kind of educational role yeah. to the other players. Being some sort of then, authority. Yeah, yeah. Then I think that really changes things. And there's a whole long line of study on that. And, and also the the bad side of that, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. The native mm-hmm. informancy and the, the Malinke figure, all these terms from cultural studies um, about the person who kind of displays or betrays their culture to the outsider. So, um, you know, I wouldn't want to see anyone forced into that kind of position, sure. not to mention that not every Chinese American or Canadian is going to be able to fulfill that kind of a role. Sure. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Michelle happens to be extremely expert, but she also, you know, has already said she doesn't speak Cantonese. Um, so I, right. I guess, you know, we're, we're going to be we're kind gonna of feeling our yeah. way through some of these pronunciations today. There is a little pronunciation chart in yes, here that is, is kind of hard to uh, to. I will say around, I did but. study Cantonese. I lived in Hong Kong for a year, and okay. I studied Cantonese. And, you know, for someone who speaks Mandarin, it was funny because... You know, when you when you have a lot of foreigners learn Mandarin, they, it's very difficult for them to distinguish between the four tones in mm. Mandarin. Um, but when I learned Cantonese, there are ten tones, Holy and cow. you know that was the first experience I had of someone trying to talk to me and like, "Do you hear the difference?" And I said, "No, I just <laughs> don't hear it at all." Yeah. So it was really fun to have that experience with Cantonese. Well, you know, but, my husband speaks Mandarin, and one time in in New York, we went to one of the new Chinatowns, mm-hmm. which are not. Cantonese based, but all Mandarin, we, yeah, not even. Oh, we went some to dialects, dim sum yeah. and tried to put our names down for a table, and he came back saying, <laughs> "I have no idea what they just said to me <laughs> yep. at all." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So anyway, so um, I, I guess to go back to your earlier question, I think that yeah, I can see now that you've reread that note in in mm-hmm. the context of Twitch or kind of a live stream yeah, thing. I can too. see under and understand that as well. But I think there is also the idea that, oh, we've invited somebody who's, who's quote-unquote authentic. Now mm-hmm. we can just mm-hmm. play the game how we like or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this in the, in the spirit of what we're doing here, it's nice for us to have the chance to talk about all these different aspects and these different layers. And, you know, and yeah. then that's not something necessarily that people playing the game would be doing, kind of a meta-conversation about representation and what, you know, you've asked me to do this or, you know, or... I don't know. So it's it's interesting, yeah. A yeah, guide for, for game sure. zero, maybe, yeah. where where you walk through some of these things for mm-hmm. for someone like that. On on the same note, I think that 
just having that hard and fast rule against accents mm-hmm. is a really good one, especially yep. seeing the fun that a lot of voice actors have with D&D mm-hmm. right. mm-hmm. or whatever when they're streaming mm-hmm. and recording. Um, you know, just setting that. I know in, in Harlem Unbound, they also just said, just don't do it. You yeah. know, just, right. just don't. Just do don't. An like, if you yeah. find yeah. yourself thinking about doing an accent, just right. just don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that, you know, eliminates one really big source of problems right there. And I'll say, just for the record, I think it's important before we go into the play session for even the listeners to know that I will be GMing this this game, and I am, first of all, not super experienced with GMing. This is a, just a, an early session for me, yeah. and so I'll be pra- I'll be learning as I go along. But I'm also strictly going to be following the scenario written by the game's author. Mm-hmm. Right, and so all the NPCs, all the sort of illustrative details that will come out in the storytelling aspect are described in the scenario book, right? And I think that is an important thing for this session when we're analyzing, you know, sort of the how the what is the intent of the game yeah. design, what is the mm-hmm. intent of the experience, right? Because the minute in a role-playing game I start filling in a lot of those details, mm-hmm. it it deviates from that intent a little bit further, right? And and I, the, can, those constraints that we're talking about become a little wishy-washy, right? Mm-hmm. How do how do the details that the author sort of envisioned mm-hmm. fitting within those constraints is an important concept, I think, for us. To Although follow. it's interesting because it does seem like they want to encourage that yeah. you free range and you know mm-hmm. kind of go off. Yeah, there's a lot the of space for creative whatever. invention, and yeah. they curate that book is full of uh, the scenario booklet that comes with the game is full of a bunch of other ones that they've had guest authors that they've asked who are not like key designers mm-hmm. on the game. Though the game was a collaborative effort, they have a whole list of a bunch of different people who contributed sections of the book. You'll see like the historical mm-hmm. communities of color sections were written by different folks, etc. Um, but you can tell a wide range of stories. Yeah, there, it is. It is sort of like pretty minimal in that sense, right? It's sort of like a basic framework for exploring a vast and varied rich history of these communities throughout North America. Um, oh, Michelle, you could write one. Write you definitely one. could. <laughs> you definitely write could. A yeah. um, we all could. Uh, but the one that we're going to play today, I think, is also not just written by one of the game's designers, but it's, I think it's intended as a like, hey, your first time ever playing this game, mm-hmm. not sure what kind of stories it can tell, try this one. That's sort of a, an entry level. Like its an title entry is yeah. Always Carry Vinegar. Always mm, carry now I'm already oh. curious. Yeah. <laughs> it's based on a uh, actual play mm. that they called, recorded yeah. called Blood and Vinegar. Mm. Which they recorded, to pr- I assume, to promote the game when it was released. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so cool. maybe just a quick um, comment from you all about what is your experience playing games? I mean, you've mentioned a little bit about it. I mean, you, you mentioned you like games of luck, Michelle. Uh, yes, I prefer games of luck, not strategy, but um, I play all kinds of board games at home with my kids who are eight and 11, but they are, you know, things like Sequence. We play oh, yeah. that a lot. Uh, what else do we play? Sequence is good. Sushi Go, mm. card game. Oh, excellent game. Um, Sleeping Queens is a favorite in my household. Sorry, you know, all kinds of games like that. And my my son is more interested in like, other kinds of games like trains. There's something about trains. Do you know this? Ticket to Ride. Yes, that one. Mm-hmm. Yes, yep. that one. Yep, yep. Classic. I have never been a big game player, but I married one. <laughs> so yeah, it rubs off. Ago. It rubs yes. off. <laughs> so a few years ago, pre-pandemic, uh, we started playing D&D a little bit. And then uh, that was actually a nice thing to do with a group over Zoom. 
during mm-hmm. the pandemic. Um, but we switched to Cthulhu because combat's so slow. And when you're going around a Zoom, that's mm. it's really, really mm. slow. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's actually playing quite regularly these days. I haven't been as much. Mm. Um, but those are the two systems that I know. Mm. Excellent. Cool. That's it. So I think you'll both be right at home. It's very, very familiar stuff going on in this game with the, in terms of... Um, Dice rolling. Role-playing stru- role systems playing. in general, but also you're really just rolling some dice and hopefully you get the results that you need. And if not, then you have to figure out We beat the what zombies. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's right. dice rolling <laughs> plus sort of like on-the-spot improv storytelling, basically. That's, all, that's what we're up to here today. Uh, so I think that about covers it. Should we get into the game? Let's do it. Now it's time for the two-minute teach where we explain the game briefly, go over the rule set, and talk about a few key aspects of the game before we sit down to play it. Zhangshu, Blood in the Banquet Hall, is a game where players assume the roles of members in a multi-generational immigrant family who own and operate a restaurant in 1920s Chinatown. By day, they must work together to weather the everyday oppression of racial prejudice, while at night, they must protect themselves against supernatural terrors. Zhangshu is a game about holding onto family bonds in the face of adversity. Each player character's generational location affects their backstory and positions them as first, second, or even fourth generation immigrants whose life experiences, for instance, of historical events in China or of their new social milieu in North America, differ accordingly. Jiangshu is also a game about food, and more importantly, about the labor of food service. Much of the game's role-playing involves managing the workload of the family business by allocating hours to the daily tasks associated with the restaurant, while also dealing with the capricious and sometimes difficult demands of the customers. Each game of Jiangshu takes place over a sequence of days. Days are broken up into four phases, morning, afternoon, evening, and dead of night. In the morning, family members are dealt restaurant cards, representing various tasks that must be performed in preparation for that day's service, such as receiving deliveries of produce, cleaning the kitchen, or rewriting the day's menu. Any tasks not successfully completed in the morning are placed on the restaurant board as neglect, posing a risk to the business's viability and, by extension, the family's economic survival. During the afternoon and evening phases, the restaurant's service commences, and players must now balance their jobs around the restaurant with the delicate task of uncertain social interactions with a host of non-player characters. These might include discussions with neighboring community members from around Chinatown, high-stakes encounters with the local police force, cagey exchanges with rival restaurateurs, or, of course, service-based interactions with dining customers. As they navigate these challenging social interactions, players roll a collective pool of dice to determine the success or failure of their efforts. These dice rolls can be modified by utilizing certain skills or facets associated with a player character. For example, a character skilled in cooking might choose to reattempt a challenge roll when dealing with a lack of ingredients in the kitchen. Or a character with the herbalist facet might gain an advantage when attempting to administer a medicinal remedy to a family member. Player characters can also utilize everyday items, such as cigarettes or a bottle of vinegar, to respond to situational challenges or can even commune with the spirit of an ancestor by using a cherished family heirloom. As the evening draws to a close, these challenges take on a more sinister form as supernatural terrors begin to manifest in the dead of night. During the night, players must struggle together to fend off the threat of evil Jiangshu, hopping vampires of Chinese folklore. When the characters encounter Jiangshu, they may take damage or fall prey to disturbing nightmares in their sleep. 
If the harmful effects of these nighttime encounters pile up, they can severely hamper the family's capacity to run their restaurant successfully on subsequent days. To mitigate this threat, characters must also heal each other and offer psychological comfort. Each session of Zhang Shi ends one of two ways. Either the family works together to keep the restaurant running and survive for five consecutive days in a row, or the restaurant falls into neglect and fails before the five days are up. The rulebook goes to great lengths to ensure that each game session carefully deals with the topic of anti-Asian racism. There is a robust section on player safety, guidelines for non-Chinese American players taking on Chinese American characters, and a portion dedicated to handling racist non-player characters in the story world responsibly. When players are building their characters and giving them a Chinese name, there are guidelines to help with the pronunciation of Cantonese dialect. There are also didactic historical sections on American Chinatowns and Cantonese cuisine, and even a section advising players on role-playing as food service workers. We really enjoyed two more subtle mechanics that help players immerse themselves in their characters. Each character has hopes and dreams, which should inspire players to role-play in certain scenarios in ways that align with a long-term aspiration for their character. For example, a character might get creative with writing out a menu if their hopes and dreams are to become a writer of great works of fiction. Each character is also given a limited number of points to assign to speaking and writing skills in two languages, Cantonese and English. If the story presents an interaction with a non-player character who only speaks one language, the player group must think carefully about which player character should be the one to take the lead in that particular interaction. Zhang Shi's mechanical features strongly encourage players to explore intergenerational family dynamics and build meaningful connections between their characters. For example, the rule and scenario books suggest that players create characters from across three different generations, from grandparent to grandchild, even going as far as featuring this information prominently on the individual character sheets. Mung cards feature nightmares and other dreams that prevent players from taking certain actions until another family member role-plays the act of discussing their dreams and comforting the nightmare-afflicted character. There is also an optional spirit paper mechanic, which can be used to heal a family member who has turned into a zhang shi, but only if every family member can quickly agree upon a word or phrase that characterizes how their family stays strong together during particularly scary moments. All these subtle mechanics work harmoniously and require characters to forge deeper bonds and explore the complexities of familial relationships in a hostile world. We start the scene at the gates of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm betting that, you know, we'll do a lot of off-menu home-style dishes for the oh, old Chinese okay. clientele that drifts in from time to time. Mm-hmm. I want to ditch my chores. I don't want to do them. Me, I'm busy. I mean, I'm cooking. I got all this work to do. What's up with this worm in the jar? So the way this works is yeah. if that you had rolled a four, we yeah. would eliminate your highest die. Because I guess it is, is four unlucky. Yes, it sounds so. like death. So I'm gonna. Ask, where, where did you where did you find this worm? It was hanging out right in front of the the door. Uh, uh, it, I, I swear. Ma, Saudi took off and didn't update <laughs> the menu. You know how to write. Oh my gosh, I'll do it. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I told you those cigarettes would be the death of you. 
yeah so 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 you you all are familiar enough with them you do the only thing you really know is that they're kind of young hip they get excited about coming they're knocking on the window so yeah we we finish a few different off menu things and send them back so out. why don't you try a skill check okay. for how this dish turns out all right well i see my mother slump over in the corner <laughs> so i'm naturally slightly concerned why are you playing with a worm oh uh, it's, it's, uh, it's nothing and you reach down okay. to grab her hand to check her hand and there's a lot of vinegar in your hand and you touch the worm and it immediately dies bam the black back door slams open well, if I had time, I'd commune with my ancestor, but uh, probably not at the moment. So mm. maybe maybe I'll just throw my knife at it and shout for my mom. Ma, what is this thing? Oh my good gracious. <laughs> uh, exclamation. Um, just pouring uncooked rice all Ma, over the Ma, what are you doing? All over the Like I'm trying rice to create like money. a... Rice <laughs> 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 Just, you want to live? <laughs> so I'm just covering the floor like a sandbox. And, and so I what does that do? It stops a jiang in its tracks. And, and ah, it's... Uh, I'm just in the corner screaming. Oh, you... Whoa! Whoa! Two eights, two sevens, and a five. Bottle explodes right on its face. Uh, you did a, a great job hitting it. And it immediately snaps out of whatever stupor it's in and becomes a human and looks at you and looks down at the rice and looks at the knife that's like sticking in his chest. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and is so confused and dis- disoriented that he just kind of wanders off. We just finished playing a very shortened round of Jean. Yes, we didn't get a chance to play the whole game um, or even the whole scenario that we wanted to. It's just, it. we, we spent a lot of time talking about the rules because that was a really important part of our conversation leading into this. Mm-hmm. And so we spent more time on that rather than sort of playing. We did get to finish a day more or less, yeah. um, which was, uh, and, and sort of get to experience all the different mechanics. Yeah. Um, but uh, Michelle, Heidi, what do you think at a very high level what do you think is being communicated by this game to a casual audience and player of this game? Well, I like the idea of the setting and the kind of general overall plot, if you will. I don't know if that's the mm-hmm. word you use, but I like that general idea and the idea that people would kind of be family members and fighting zombies. And I don't know how much detail was or wasn't in the scenario, but I feel like it's very wide open, and so if you're playing it with no cultural knowledge, mm-hmm. the scenario doesn't actually give you much to deal with, right? Like, it might be helpful if, for example, when the the Jiangshu comes to the door, that, you know, you have a kind of range of things that would be in the kitchen that you could throw at it, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise, you're just making it up, you have no idea, Um you know, so and, and I, I, I've never been in a kitchen at a Chinese food restaurant. So, and I'm right. GMing here. I mean, right? I, I, if I had maybe been a chef at a at a Chinese food restaurant, I could have given you those details. But right, much less in the 1920s. You mm-hmm. know, right? right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what technology are they using? Even so, I think it could maybe use a few more details there built in. I, and I think one of the complications of a game like this is that, you know, a player might say, oh, I have no idea really, but I'm just imagining, oh, you know, this is giving me a taste of what Chinese 
whatever life or whatever mm. it's like, mm-hmm. but really it's like a mishmash as we kind of discuss some of the things about class, you know, a restaurant owner probably isn't going to have all this fancy jewelry or, you know, mm. like the realities of how people's lives were lived and different challenges they might have encountered because it has the fantasy element. It's sort of like, yes, you're getting a, a taste of Chinese something, maybe life at that moment, but it's so mixed up with so many things that it you know, so, so so to me, I think the danger is thinking, um, well, with any kind of uh, representation or narrative about a particular ethnic community is that you've seen one, you think you've seen them all, but in fact, you've just seen one. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. But, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think this came through pretty clearly with my character, the grandmother, when we mm-hmm. were doing our character creation and walking through the different skills and facets and things, you both mm-hmm. kind of raised your eyebrows at like the high degree of literacy and that mm-hmm. I have this like ancient tome and I was mm-hmm. been around since the 1860s. It does feel to me fair to say that this game is not necessarily presenting itself as an educational tool in the historical right. sense. I don't think it's, a t- even in bad faith, like Oregon mm-hmm. Trail or something, which is right. like a bad faith example of a game that proposes to teach you about history. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it necessarily is trying to teach history mm-hmm. so much as it maybe is trying to tell fantasy horror stories set within a historical context like that's the starting point, and then to say, okay, well, how do we treat this historical context actually responsibly? How could yeah. that, then, how could that look? And maybe that's uns- unsuccessful too, right? But I think right. that like the impetus is less educational, really, at the end of the day. Sure. Uh, which is why like this character becomes uh, like creative exercise and imagining this wonderful grandmother mm-hmm. who's like this mm-hmm. chain-smoking, gambling shaman scholar, right? Like, oh, what if this was a person that we could place and have stories with, right? So in um, that context, what is being communicated? Yeah, you know, what's the if point? It's not, if it's yeah. not, it's not to educate, educate. Yeah. Yeah. It, but so could, is it educating something else? Like for you all, and, and I don't want to be presumptuous. I'm not trying to force a, sort of an interpretation. My hope for this game is that it shines a light on a certain type of experience. And is it doing that at all for you? I do think there's a way in which any kind of game like this does something that you would hope most people could do anyway if they thought about it, which is just to recognize that there are human beings Mm. working in these places and having different experiences from yours every day, right? That this is a family and they're squabbling and they're trying to get their work done and all of that and they're not just sort of these, you know, automatons who appear when you go into the restaurant and serve you food Mm. uh, and walk out. So I think there is always kind of the hope of that kind of um, experience or or slightly educational element. You know, does it go beyond the surface? Uh, That also depends on the individual. Mm. Well, I think, you know, everything aside, I think the, the impact or the interest is on the kind of the game playing level to have a scenario that involves any ethnic identity at all Mm -hmm. and you know focuses Mm -hmm. on and for you know a community where people who might super be into role-playing games but never see or experience anything like what they have seen or experienced represented in game form I think that's the significance of it so regardless of how it plays or what the, you know, whether it has these inaccuracies or whatever, I think more than anything else, it's just the idea of we can create a fantasy universe that involves people that aren't, 
you know, whatever the the cast of uh, Lord of the Rings and, and the movie mm-hmm. version, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's white. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, in fantasy lands, everybody's always white. And so the idea that you know you could have this fantasy land that is uh, not is interesting, yeah. and that is worth you know people experiencing and doing so that they can more see the norms that normally people don't see or or you know non-racialized in a way that always presumes kind of a white universal subject Mm -hmm. so how about it does beg the question though about the historical setting choice right Mm -hmm. it's like could be it could have been a fantasy horror story set in contemporary um america there are plenty of you know chinese americans living in america now um it still could be chinatown yeah right um so yeah, I, I do. I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but it is an interesting choice to sort of say to select as the kind of like architecture. It could be in China, right? It could realism, be a restaurant you know. in China. Too, yeah, so, sure. Right? Yeah. So I think, yeah. and in a way, because it's sort of like this historical role playing, it won't hit so close to home because you can think to yourself, oh, well, people were racist like that cop were racist back then, but now you know we've moved beyond that or something. Whereas if you made it a contemporary restaurant, it would hit a lot differently i think because Mm -hmm. i think that's part of making it and also you know if you want people to know the history you're going to want to set it in a historical period that they can talk about chinese exclusion and all this other stuff i think that the 1920s choice i mean this it feels like a very cthulhu type game to me Hmm. right a lot of emphasis on psychological horror and the damage to the players um so placing it in the 20s also kind of places it you know well for for that game playing audience Hmm. And there's an element of inclusion there, right? Kind of, it's, it's like expanding the the Cthulhu universe in a way. But also, I will say, um, although I think it's true that the historical setting kind of gives a, a little bit of a, a remove from confronting the realities of racism now, um, it has also been really important for a lot of Asian Americans to claim a longer history in this country mm-hmm. and for people to understand that, particularly because it is such a heavy immigrant population. It's still a majority immigrant population and very fast growing. Um, and so there has been a lot of desire for people to understand that there have been Asian Americans in America for such a long time. So I think that's that's a, possibly another mm-hmm. motivation mm-hmm. for the a, historical a setting. Story. Yeah, and another mm-hmm. uh, another way in which the game educates just by its very setting. How about that idea of racism as a mechanic, right, in a game, right? Because it mm-hmm. really does encourage every player of this game to deal with that in some way, right? Mm-hmm. And they say you, there's a range of possibilities for how we can experience that. Do you think that's useful to a contemporary audience f- to to experience in gameplay? I'm not sure that gameplay is really ever going to come close to, mm. you know, what it feels like or whatever. Like, there's the mechanics of it. In this situation, it's controlled. Mm. You can say this, and if you roll the dice right, then he will, you know, ignore it or whatever. Yeah. But to have that have be any inkling of what the experience is like, it seems a little bit not realistic to me. To me, it's just simply another device. In another game, it wouldn't be racism. It'd be that you're wounded by a sword or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's just, it It may have that intention on the part of the designers, but, and it's interesting to think about how one can experience that. Because I do believe that those experiences 
you know, whether it's the Stanford prison experiment or whatever, mm -hmm. that people really do get into stuff and really do start to feel, oh, it feels like that. But I think because there are so many rules and it's, well, at least for me as a non-role-playing game person, rolling dice and all this stuff, it just doesn't, it doesn't really approximate that experience experience mm. to me at all like it doesn't yeah i think you know. thinking about it as an educator you know education is always slippery trying mm -hmm. to trying to make sure in any way that your students are taking away the thing you want them to take away it's, it can be difficult so i can easily see that somebody resistant to this idea could play this game and say well, that police officer wasn't racist. That's just general corruption, right? And they did it to everybody, right? And so um, I think that if, if you are trying to tell a really specific story about systemic or institutional racism, it probably has to be more explicit, has to be more scripted, mm -hmm. has to be very specific, and then it has to pose serious constraints in the game. Here, we kind of played our way through it. There were a bunch of options, mm -hmm. but you could see a way in which it would be made so that you know, a police officer came around and said, we're, we're not going to turn a blind eye to this Chinese restaurant serving alcohol, mm -hmm. but we are going to let this white-owned restaurant serve alcohol, mm -hmm. right? Or that they have to go get a white middleman mm -hmm. to, you know, bribe the police or something like that. So I think, you know, if that's the goal, and I'm not saying it necessarily is for this game, then it would have to be made much more pointed. What about this game surprised you all? I really enjoyed the family interaction. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I've played an RPG where, it's oh no, family. I think I, I did play a character with a kind of dotty cousin or something like that but um but not not a whole family i think mm -hmm. i i didn't realize how much i'd enjoy that element and kind of infusing yeah. uh the everyday exasperation of you family you relations you haven't played the game of life <laughs> <laughs> i certainly have never role played as somebody who was a not just a parent but a grandparent yeah. which became a parent mm. uh, no mm -hmm. no it became clear very quickly when i wanted to heal my grandchild so that the customers wouldn't be upset, not because they were traumatized. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> My compassion was not mm -hmm. precisely attuned. Um, are there surprises? Yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, um, I think because I have no experience <clears throat> with other role-playing games, the form of it is all new to me. And mm -hmm. it seems like many of the things that you have, ex all the, the rest of you have experienced in role-playing games, the rolling of dice, the, da the quote-unquote damage, the, mm -hmm. you know, those are things that seem to be things that they're kind of translating into this particular form. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's just all the rules and all the, you know, it's too complicated for me. <laughs> I just like... You get used to it. Yes, that, but, but that's what I mean. Like, you're used to the, the, the conventions of the genre, but for somebody who is not... Like, um, it's interesting that, like, that book is so thick with the descriptions and the context and the, you know, all of that stuff. So that, to me, is surprising that they really put all that effort into, you know, and that might be typical for any kind of role-playing game. But for me, that's, that's a really interesting way of presenting this yeah. information. I do want to say, you know, we're obviously having all these important discussions about what a game can and can't teach and mm -hmm. even some of the... Uh, historical flights of fancy we've seen in the game, but mm -hmm. I really enjoyed this, and I enjoy as an Asian American and as an Asian Americanist mm -hmm. scholar right. that there is this game set yes. in 1920s Chinatown that I can go play now, or that I can 
suggest yeah, to totally students agree. in the Asian think, American Center. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I, exactly the point, is that, yeah. that it imagines a universe that makes it possible for people to think, oh, you know, here's this creative different setting that yeah. I, I hadn't thought about before as a game, as a role-playing mm-hmm. game. So, you know, it yeah. doesn't have to be some kind of Europeanized mm-hmm. fantasy, you know, right. castles right. or whatever Dragons, that castles. we have all yeah. this mm-hmm. other... Like, yeah, and a place, a, a game where these identities can be normalized. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, when I've played Cthulhu, I can play an Asian American in Cthulhu, but you've got to really backstory the heck out of it, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and make them fit into Arkham. There's only so many Korean Americans I can bring to Arkham, <laughs> you know, without writing my own scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, maybe in closing, I would just say, has playing Zhang Shu made either of you think about games generally in a different way at all? Well, it's definitely given me food for thought in the possible development of my own mm. educational game. Some of the pitfalls that we're talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a reason I like games of luck and <laughs> not <laughs> games of strategy or anything like this because it just seems like a huge investment of time. But um, but uh, I, I'm very impressed by all the different aspects that they had to think through in order to create these different scenarios and skills and facets. And, you know, they kind of mapped it in a really interesting way. And that complexity of that map is what is most interesting to me mm. as a as a non-role-playing gamer. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. It's yeah. been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciated it. I look forward to playing your educational game that you're working yes. on. Right? <laughs> thank yes. you. Uh, I, I hope it will be as well-designed as this one. And I really appreciate the thoughtfulness about how your own experience is researching this particular history and the, the, the culture can be integrated into role-playing games because it is hugely complex. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, this is just one iteration of it. You should see the libraries of role-playing games mm-hmm. that people are selling at some of the conventions that yeah. Steve and I go to. Mm-hmm. And now we have some some new thoughtful sort of mm-hmm. lenses to look through as we're as we're exploring those titles. So yeah, appreciate and, it. Very and it's much. an exciting time right now in the in the you know quote unquote industry. There are titles like this being produced. Yeah, um, that which is the most exciting part uh, of it. There was a, there's all, another one. Uh, uh, that takes place in an alternate future where the Americas were not colonized. It was kick-started recently called Coyote and Crow, which was mm. created by a collaboration of several indigenous game designers, um, cool. which imagines like an alternative yeah. future. So there's interesting stuff happening in the space, mm-hmm. like around identity and, and ethnicity, and especially mm-hmm. like the politics of race and his, historically, right? Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank uh, you very really much. I appreciate your, your yeah. insights and your expertise. You. Uh, that was fun. Thanks. So here we are after playing Zhang Xie, which was fun. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting experience. It was engaging, um, thought-provoking, challenging at times for me personally. Not like any other experience we've had on this program podcast because it was our first role-playing game. Yeah, our first role-playing game. That's notable. Super notable. It's a very different experience at the table. and There's a different ask of the players too, right? So a little production insight here. We don't write the two-minute teach until after this conversation. You've heard it all as a as a l- yes. listener base here, but um, we don't we don't know what that's going to say yet. It's going to be interesting writing the two-minute teach. I'm I'm kind of looking forward to that. I yeah. it's a, it's a different kind of experience when you're talking about a game that involves an entire book of rules, right? Um, the overarching strokes though are you know pretty profound, right? The yeah. the game deals with some new topics that I've never dealt with in a 
well, not new topics. The topics are as timeless as human yeah. humanity. Unfortunately. But um, the way that it incorporates it into a game system. Yeah. I've certainly. Thoughtfully. Never, yeah. I've never seen it at certain topics. I mean, we're sort of beating around the bush here, but things like racism, I've never yeah. seen implemented in a game uh, firsthand in quite this way. I'm sure there are other examples. I don't think Junction yeah. is the only game to try yeah. and do this, but uh, I had never really played one mm-hmm. and tried that out. So that was certainly an interesting experience for sure. Let's get into it. Yeah, Why don't you I'll share... share my meaningful moment. Yeah, let's talk about some meaningful moments we had with this game. Why so don't... my meaningful moment was when I needed to role play the first guest of the restaurant to you all. Yeah. So yeah. there so were... So in- interesting, I'm just now live in this moment realizing that our meaningful moments are going to be very different probably because you were moderating yeah, this game. I totally. was playing the totally. game. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I felt like that even, that the difference there kind of carried into our conversation afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I felt like I was talking about things slightly differently than everybody else. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Our, our, our meaningful moments are going to be very different. But I had the responsibility of kind of introducing systemic racism as per the sort of prompting of the rule book and mm-hmm. the prompting of the scenario. Right Now, the scenario doesn't really explain how that racism plays out or anything like that because it allows the different gaming groups to sort of decide how extreme they want that, or not extreme, but necessarily the sort of quality of the racism. Well, in, yeah, in, I mean, in, in, it, in the sort of conversation that we're having around the table. How intense, maybe? Yeah. Like, how intense we want that to be. Yeah. So, I had to kind of make that call. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I introduce that concept? Mm-hmm. And I had to, I did it, I think, a very mild very very mild version of it very veiled uh right. but i you know because it was such a heavy part of our conversation and something that we were definitely all as a group interested in sort of analyzing i needed to think how to do that how to bring that into the game session because that was sort of my role and responsibility as the the game manager uh of this session i thought about it i had to sort of very intentionally engage with that idea of these two guests of this restaurant, these two um, customers coming in and displaying sort of casual, but sort of persistent, uh, you know, I thought yeah, systemic yeah. racism, right? Yeah. This is interesting. I assumed you were going to start talking about the police officer. You're talking no, no, no. about the couple, the, the young, the couple, the young couple. couple that come yeah. in as like sort of tourists looking yeah. for a thrill to be going to yeah. this Chinese food restaurant. Yeah. And um, that's the way the book describes it, folks. I mean, it's not me saying that they're looking for a thrill. That's the way it, it I mean, it has quotes around the word thrill in yeah, the scenario yeah, yeah, yeah. guide, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it, it's sort of hinting at that sort of veiled racism mm-hmm. from these two characters. Mm-hmm. And so I had to think about how to implement that in a meaningful and thoughtful way. And I've never really been asked to do that sure. in a game sure yeah, yeah and um so i think in that sense i had for the first time ever in a gaming session had to think about how racism might play out in a social interaction mm-hmm. i think that that's often perhaps very intentionally excluded sure from the types of games we play yeah and in this particular game it's asking you to be very intentional about doing that yes and that was a meaningful moment um in the sense that i had to think about how i've overlooked that in games 
for basically the my entire life of playing games. Well, I mean, they very rarely, if ever, ask you to think about it. Right. right? This is not something our games ask us to do on the whole. Our mm-hmm. games do not usually ask us to consider how racism works at a general systemic level, which is what moderating does. Because it's like, mm-hmm. okay, let's impose some mechanical rules and systems by which we can render the existence of racism in this make-believe world around the table. But they also don't ask us to think about how those how those sort of phenomena like racism or uh, you know sexism or any of the, anything else you might talk about how those things play out at the level of interaction uh, and in a role playing game which is really the bread and butter of the game it has all these mechanical systems around character creation and world setting and challenges and resolving checks and all that stuff but the bread and butter of a role playing experience is the character interaction between mm-hmm. characters and between characters and non player characters. And in this game, if you use the scenarios that are given to you and even the recommendations of like the setting with which it's presented, mm-hmm. racism becomes a kind of central, if not like uh, unavoidable, maybe at least, if not central, but an unavoidable fact of how those interactions play out Mm -hmm. right which is i think reflective of a certain position that the game designers have taken in terms of the historical material that racism is an unavoidable fact of social life Mm -hmm. for chinese americans living in a chinatown in california or canada or new york during the 1920s Mm -hmm. it's maybe not always present it's maybe not you know super dangerous in every case but it is not something you can forget about or just not take into account Mm -hmm. right that's kind of where the game lands i think yeah what is your meaningful moment so my meaningful moment um, is going to be very different. Um, and it's interesting that yours is about systemic um, racism. Mine was more about familial relationships mm. because I was role-playing as a member of a family, mm-hmm. right? Um, and really the notion of like intergenerational storytelling was something that stood out to me as meaningful from my experience. There was one particular moment, and this came up in lots of different ways, but I'll, I'll center this on one moment with my character because that's where I was sort of like living the story from that perspective. It came into play when um, the grandchild character uh, shirked their chores, lied to the mother about having done them and left early. And then the mother discovered that there was this neglected work in the restaurant and they asked me, the grandmother, if I could do it because I had some skill in writing I was very literate. I had writing and reading, and it needed to, we needed to rewrite the menu, right? But I had already spent three hours doing a writing task. I was writing a new advertisement for us. So at first, we were all sitting there going, okay, great. Oh, that makes sense. I can do it. Yeah, for sure, because you can't do it all at once. I'll do it because I have writing. That makes sense, you know? But of course, I had to roll to do this thing. Mm-hmm. So then the game mechanics kicked in in the form of the dice roll, and then my roll was a failure. It was not a successful role, which meant we then needed to, or me, I needed to role play a reason for why my literate character was not able to complete this task and help out pick up the slack. And so I sort of, it, it spurred me spontaneously and in the moment to try and come up with some sort of reason. And I fell back on the notion of age and that this person was old and maybe in my hands were just not up to, it. I couldn't quite mm-hmm. write all I, you know, I'd already spent three hours writing. I couldn't do it uh, another two hours of writing, right? And because I failed, that that the system also prompted me to like curate a flashback. So then I started talking about, okay, well, what if I remember when I first learned to write and there was this sort of like history of parents teaching their children. And so I remember how much fun I used to have when I could write all day long, et cetera, et cetera. And that became like, maybe for me, for my character, the richest moment in the whole play in terms of like who my character was and what their motivations were, because it was I was prompted by the game to like curate a flashback, and that that prompting was occasioned by just something as as so you know as random as a dice roll. I, if I had succeeded on that roll, that wouldn't have happened. But so that's what I found sort of meaningful about it as a gaming moment is the game 
facilitated this moment because it's like, okay, here's how this gets resolved. You roll a bunch of dice. Oh, bad roll. So now you have to do this, this, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And that prompted me to have this really rich moment of like character building and, and thinking about my own past, which of course then as a player, not as the character, but as the player, prompted me to explore things like age, aging, mm-hmm. relationships, intergenerational relationships, because my flashback, you know, as I just related, became not about my children, but about my parents, but I was the oldest. So it's sort of like it further instantiated something which is central to the game, which is the notion of intergenerational uh, bonds of family of memory of tradition within a family unit and so i found that really like compelling and interesting and it just sort of came out of the fact that we randomly drew some restaurant cards the the yeah. scenario prompted one of the characters to not use them or to not complete them and then the two players at the table that remained had to kind of figure out a way to try and game that and the rolled was a fail and so then i had to you, know, you see what I'm- so i actually got some meaning out of that moment as well but it's sort of from a different perspective you were writing the entries on a menu which I thought was strange. <laughs> How often do you go to a restaurant where you get a handwritten menu? menu? Well, it is the 1920s after That's all. That's exactly my point, yeah. right? And we did talk a little bit about how there was not a lot of historical context specifically in the game rules, right? I mean, there was, there was a lot of historical context about chinatown yeah. and the front of the, about, of the source book is is loaded with historical background but the actual systems of the game is right yeah. there and, but i actually kind of in that moment i was like well that's kind of interesting uh, you know i guess you would have to handwrite your menu because there's probably not a printer easily accessible to yeah. everybody who runs a restaurant and your menu probably changes a lot based on like what ingredients well, you have available and systems of distribution for and, restaurant supplies and things like that well, and <laughs> what's funny about this though is you're talking there's I'm realizing that this maybe was not the best role play on my part because I was operating under this assumption of like how we interact with menus now mm-hmm. when they're printed. Mm-hmm. Of course, this restaurant probably would not have had like 20 copies of a handwritten menu. It probably had a chalkboard or something. Right. Right. <laughs> so you write it up on the wall <laughs> and that's how you can rewrite it every day because right. it's like there's a menu and it's right. there or there's What's a board. Available, a board right. with, you still see this now, like a board with movable letters that you can like rearrange or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's the menu probably, right, in a 20s restaurant unless they have a huge amount of wealth to pour into. Like a fancy restaurant might have like individual menus that were, I don't know if they would be handwritten, but they could afford to print mm-hmm. nice copies well, and, and replace them. That, so that yeah. was a very rich moment. I, I enjoyed the way it got role played and, you know, yeah. it involved all the players. It was, it was nice. So what's there, your, uh, what's your unexpected exper- yeah, expertise? Yeah, my unexpected expertise is sort of on the same theme of family. Um, and there were other meaningful moments too, like, that just came out of the damn dynamics of the family, the way that like uh, Michelle was like, don't tell mom, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> little things like that. Right. Uh, but this was the one I just narrated was, was sort of my moment that it was more central to me. My unexpected expertise also has to do with um, the conversation we were having with Michelle about food uh, prior to the play and the difference between like food cultures and cuisine, like culture versus cuisine, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and just thinking through how, when we think about food cultures, it really is quite important to think past the ingredient list. When we talk about Cantonese cuisine, that might mean a number of recognizable or familiar dishes. It might mean a certain uh, type of produce that is uh, from Mm -hmm. a region that is usually showing up in foodstuffs and things like this. But when we talk about a food culture, really that's just the tip of the iceberg. When we're thinking about what defines a food culture, it has more to do with the context of eating. Like, where are we when we're eating this? What kinds of arrangements do we eat it in? What do we do around the activity of eating? How does the eating facilitate other forms of social interaction? And that was a point that she drove home really strongly 
that just stuck mm-hmm. out to me. Not as like something that, oh my gosh, I've never thought about this before, but it was a really important sort of like reminder of like how we frame food culture as actually for her, like if you want to talk about in her own experience, if you want to talk about like quote unquote Chinese food, it really has very little to do with what's being eaten. Mm-hmm. It has to do with how it's being eaten in a context of family, in a context of like an intimate gathering around a large table with lots of people, intergenerational, right? And the game does a really good job of foregrounding those other dynamics in other ways, but uh, it was unexpected in in so far as like I was thinking about Cantonese cuisine from a Westerner's perspective or from a white perspective of like, oh, well, it's this dish and this dish and this dish and it has these ingredients or it puts these kinds of sauces together. But yeah, I mean, I just thought that was a, it was an unexpected in so far as I was not, having read the rule book and prepared to play, that was not something I was really thinking about. But then again, when she brought it up, it of course reinforced other things that the rule book was mm-hmm. all about, right? She, she was like, for me, Chinese food, quote unquote, is about family. It's about interacting together in these certain spaces. It's about intergenerational bonding. It's mm-hmm. like, well, this game is all about those yeah. things. So it does make sense that like food is so central, uh, but it just kind of shifted my way of thinking about how those related. Yeah, my unexpected expertise came from, I believe Heidi talked about this before our play session, being a sort of aspiring game designer, thinking about creating a an educational gaming experience about a very intense subject, uh, and similar to the way that this game is also thinking about that. Yeah, and um, she Heidi was thinking about the idea of a Japanese internment camp being portrayed in a game. Yeah, and the sort of experience of going into that space or that i mean probably multiple spaces right that kind of struck a chord i mean i think we got a little bit of a bonus in that she's thinking about being a game designer and but i love that moment when we're talking with people Mm -hmm. when they start thinking about how they can represent their own expertise in a game yeah and i loved that she responded to the thing i said about uh, constraints yeah guiding your players through constraints. And and really you do that through the creation of rules. Yeah, right. Right, so rules as constraints. And that I think was a moment that provided perhaps insight into what can be the solution to my question of whether or not racism can be included Mm. in games. Successfully. Successfully or or responsibly. Responsibly. Right? Well, let's get, I mean, let's hold that. Yeah. Let's talk about that. It needs to be (laughs) done with a lot of constraint. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, the thing, the example, I don't want to like rehash, we can cut this out, but what she said and what you will have heard is she was like, I don't want people to be able to play their way out of incarceration. Like you're, Mm -hmm. you're going to be incarcerated, right? This is going, this historical event is going to transpire. Mm -hmm. So the point of the game can't be avoiding that. So then what can the game provide in terms of like a challenge that has win conditions and has these other effects, right? And maybe it doesn't have to have a win condition, right? Mm -hmm. It could get into a more experimental space in terms of its design. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a super interesting uh, thing to think through. And I was equally pleased and delighted and, and unexpectedly so when she brought that out, because I was also not aware that she was working on that project. You and I have gone to many conventions and talked Mm -hmm. with people who are eager to sort of explore serious subject matter in game designs, including racism, including other much more... Sexism, patriarchy. Not even much more. Enslavement. A lot of really intense subject matter, right? Lots of Euro games totally unselfconsciously reproduce 
the histories of genocide. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's like they do it without even commenting on it. It's not even included explicitly, but it is there. But people who are trying to do it with some level of intention going into that process seem to have an easy time getting to a certain point in their designs. Yeah. And then it kind of like freezes. Yeah. Right. They get to a point where people are getting confused about the message or having yeah. a, you know, it's just a really tough situation mm-hmm. to work through, I think as a designer. Yeah. And I, I thought this, this game did a, a, a pretty good job at laying the groundwork for a careful exploration of yeah. this topic. I, I think the, the rule book, the, the like main source handbook does an incredible job of preparing players for how to best and most safely engage with the game and what it's trying to do and then how to actually go through the nuts and bolts of telling those stories. Mm-hmm. I do think that, and I don't mean this as a criticism necessarily, but just as something which I personally like wanted more of, just even as someone who's done a lot of like quote unquote extracurricular around this game, watching interviews with the people who designed it on YouTube or listening to them on podcasts, uh, it would benefit maybe from the inclusion of a more robust sort of like designer statement. How about subject matter score? Should yeah, so let's do it. We're going to do the, the tried and true format. On we'll zero. Do on zero. Three, two, one, okay. on zero, we'll say. And drum roll. Yep. Okay. Three, three two, two, one. Five. 6.5. Okay. I said five. 6.5. Okay. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go sure. first? Sure. Um, yeah, I'll go first. I think I actually wrote down two numbers on here. Okay. Actually, yes, I did write down two numbers. I, I wrote an eight and a three. Wow. So I split the difference. And said five. Because I think it depends on how you look at this game. Absolutely. I would say as a fantasy with believable Chinese protagonists, it does a great job, right? It, you know, that was one of the things that Michelle said, right? Yeah. I, this, is a, this is a fantasy game, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not a historical document, yeah. right? It does have historical material as a source material, as a reference mm-hmm. for what we're sort of thinking about. In, yes. But... So does every Eurocentric fantasy game that's ever been produced. Yeah, right. I think it does a really great job. I think it's at doing that, right? Mm -hmm. That it asks us to develop characters in a careful way, in a way that is just as careful, if not more careful, than other games that are set in historically slightly realistic settings but introduce tremendous amounts of fantasy material mm-hmm. and this that even the fantasy material is sourced from chinese culture mm-hmm. right yes yeah mm-hmm. and and i think that's important to note right and and, I, and it does a good job where on the other hand i think this game is maybe getting some unfair attribution to being to attempting to create a lesson in experiencing racism or the act of like cooking or something like that yeah. and and i and i I think if it's if people are looking at it that way, it gets a much lower number. Sure, um, but it, because it does yeah, not well, have a description of the tools we're yeah, using. Yeah, we in don't the have kitchen. to. Yeah, the cooking is simply like cook yeah. these noodles. Do you have enough time on your sheet? Yes, spend it. It's done. Done. Yeah. It, it, so it, the the food, the engagement of the food is, you know, at, at basically just the um, the level of me engaging yeah. with the food on a menu. I right. mean, it is, well, I should retract my, it's not quite that reductive. It's, you have to make the noodles and then, you you know, you have to cook them when service arrives. So there, it's not as though, yeah, it's not totally abstracted, but yes, I take your point. It is not a kitchen simulation. Yeah. 
Yeah. In any sense. No. Right. Nor does it intend to be. No. Yeah. So why why 6.5 for you? 6. So this is good because it goes right off of what you've just said. And I think we'll probably riff back and forth a bit more. But so for me, it really comes down to like this tension, which emerged in our conversation with the experts, but also just in my playing the game, which I hadn't done before, between kind of like the impetus towards some kind of historical realism and the impetus towards some kind of form of fantasy storytelling with horror elements. And so another thing that I should probably sort of disclose is that when I was trying to analyze this game and give it a score, I found myself, and I think this has to do again with it being an RPG, which we haven't done before on the show, found myself really falling back on sort of like literary criticism mm. because it's a narrative creation. That's what the game does. You, you tell stories, you mm -hmm. create a story collaboratively using some mechanics and some systems, but you're essentially collaborative fiction writers around a table, right? And so I kept trying to sort of like understand and situate my engagement with that text that we were creating around the table in terms of some of these terms or some of these um, concepts that I was just sort of talking about, right? And something that emerged in our conversation with Heidi and Michelle was a kind of tension, somewhat unresolved amongst the players and the moderator and the game itself between like historical accuracy versus historical reclamation through storytelling, whether that be fantasy storytelling mm -hmm. or realist storytelling, but a reclamation mm -hmm. of a particular kind of history and a acts of historical revision, yep, right? And like actively rewriting history in a way that might be more empowering or that might be more mm -hmm. exciting or fun or simply fun, right? Um, and so I was thinking about um, like the function of historical realism and how we can think about historical realism as an approach for storytelling. And I was reminded of the work of a literary critic uh, named Anna Kornblu, whose work I quite admire. Uh, and I'll just sort of briefly gloss and probably, you know, mangle uh, Anna's fine work. <laughs> but, but she's written a lot on realism lately. And one of the things that she says is that realism, we should think about it really as like the architecture of literature, right? Uh, so it doesn't have anything to do with the kind of like the substance of the narrative, but it has to do with like how that narrative can take shape, mm -hmm. right? Like what are the, it's a formal architecture, which is used to, represent the world in a particular way and it's a realist way right rather than a surrealist way or a magically realist way and this is kind of a magical realist game in some yep. ways Absolutely. right uh, it's not quite that postmodern in its storytelling techniques but it is blending fantasy and horror genre fiction tropes with an attempt to provide a historically realist architecture for that storytelling and so i think that's one of the things that determines like how you come at that depends on how you score it, right? Like to where you fall on that spectrum or what is, what do you, what do you gauge is like where it's aiming will depend on where it lands. Right. And so I gave it a 6.5 because I thought that as something that is attempting to provide a kind of historically realist architecture for fantasy storytelling in a kind of magical realist way, I found it quite successful as a game. Right. And it's, the problem is that it's not a singular work. It is a collaborative work that's also open-ended enough to welcome any number of infinite amount of people to sit down and collaborate and make stories, mm -hmm. right? So it's extremely open and flexible, which also means that there are like, quote-unquote, holes, right? Or like or like omissions or like these things that whenever in, in another frame, if we were approaching it purely as like historical realism, would be problems. They would right. be inaccuracies, right? Sure. Uh, these become now opportunities, 
for reclamation or for revision or for these other things which magical realist work often does, right? So I'm not trying to make a strong argument here that we classify Zhang Xu as like magical realism, but I was just like found yeah. myself falling back on these terms as trying to make sense of what was happening here. And I think, you know, it should be mentioned too that both of the designers have said in other forums that like the Zhang Xu horror that occurs in the game should be understood as like a playful metaphor, an extension right. that allows people to explore the real horrors of the histories of racial discrimination and economic or social exclusion, which Chinese American and Chinese Canadian communities sure. experienced. Right. So there is an intent there to like reimagine or to mediate these historical horrors through a magical sort of rendering as these fantasy horror tropes. Right? I have some questions about that too. And I, I'm not the one who can answer these questions. Yeah. Right. And I think both, neither of us can, right. This idea of, when you start to revise history for the sake of fun, mm. right? Because, I mean, m introducing zombies into the Chinese food restaurant, even if they're being used metaphorically, <laughs> right, is, I mean, that for pe anybody playing this, it's yeah. it's going to make it more entertaining, sure. right? In in the context of this game and this in this magical world that we're in, in experiencing through the yeah. act of play. And... I time and time again go back to that, right? If you just replicate history in this format, mm -hmm. role-playing game, board game, digital game, whatever it is, it's going to be probably not very much fun to play. Yeah, if we had just been running a restaurant in 1920s Chinatown right? and confronting the sort of, what is it, the explicit, commonplace, frequent, and dangerous effects of mm -hmm. racism in the mm -hmm. United States... Or in Canada, not many people are going to be down. It wouldn't be. To, to engage with that. It might be, <laughs> depending on how it's rendered, it might be a little more like, strictly speaking, educational, mm -hmm. right? There might be an opportunity there to build in a little bit more of like robust constraints that would really in enforce a kind of historical fidelity and accuracy, the and richness that is less available to you if you want to leave it more open so that people can tell fantasy stories and have experiences role-playing in fun mm -hmm. and lively ways. I really appreciated that, and I found it a really rewarding experience that it occasioned for me the opportunity to role-play as another individual in a way that felt believable, felt meaningful, felt grounded, and that was not somebody who comes from a position that I have direct experience of. But I was able to do that in a way that felt responsible, that felt safe to the other people that I was at the table with, and that was fun. Yeah, And that helped me in the process learn a little bit about this longer history of these communities without it being like a hardcore history lesson. Uh, and that's, I don't think it's a history game, right? It's not fair, I think, to yeah. sort of like gauge it that way. I, I'll say as a, as a, the game moderator in this experience, it was a little less clear if I did a good enough job mm. at that, what you just described. And, I, and I'll be thinking about that for quite some time after this. Well, I'll be wondering... You know, I had to fill in some gaps, yeah. right? There's only so much text there in the scenario yeah. description, right? And, you know, they talk about Officer Jones being a really intense character and very clearly racist and a, a tool in this, this systemic issue. And I had to represent that person in... Uh, a way that was believable to you all as players in the context yeah. that you all had created as you were role playing. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't really know how well a job I did at that. Right. Because the game doesn't give me really an opportunity to kind of 
review that in a yeah. in a in a deep way. I mean, it does give me a few systems stars with a and debrief, wishes, maybe you know? in the debrief, which we admittedly, like full disclosure, we had to rush that a little bit because of just time. Yeah. you know, the expediencies of other people's time and trying to finish the episode. But I would I would love like a little more sort of checks and balances on how yeah. I'm doing. You know, as like a mm-hmm. as a as a white man who has yeah. not experienced that that been the subject of that yeah. uh, racism, mm-hmm. and um, I I would like to know if if there's a way for for checking me a little bit better yeah, as yeah, yeah. as I as I manage this game. It was just a really interesting and thought provoking experience. And Very thought super. Like at the end of the day, I'm just thrilled this game exists. And yeah, me too. I'm secondly, most thrilled that two people with ex- deep expertise in like the history of uh, culinary regionalism in China and of immig- immig- uh, immigrant Chinese American writers who wrote about life in China that those folks were down and willing to share their expertise with us and play this somewhat experimental game with us. Filter this experience yeah. through their expertise. Yeah, yeah. I was really grateful yeah, to just have really the opportunity awesome. to do that. Um, and I'm really grateful for this game's existence and I think it's a really interesting experiment in stretching the envelope of what games are capable of doing or what they should be capable of doing or how they can do that most effectively so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly grateful that people are, are beginning to explore games ability to allow us as players mm-hmm. to explore mm-hmm. serious subject matter yeah and that's one of the goals of the podcast. So I, yeah. I think, I think <laughs> at the end of the day, that was, that was a success here. So, okay. Well, uh, thank you, we, Steve. Yeah. Thank you, Jordan. As always uh, a pleasure. Should we wrap it up? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you all for listening and, thank you. um, much more exciting stuff to come from us this year. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe, and check us out on all your yep. streaming platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, engage. Podcast, audio streaming platforms, that is. Yeah. We have been getting emails, so thank you all for <clears throat> yeah, sending those Yeah, thank you for the feedback. Along. We have and gotten a little bit of feedback yeah. on some of our recent work, so that's oh, always we, great. We're always happy to get messages from folks. I haven't checked the Gmail in a while. Have you been in there? I've been in there. Okay. I've been sending some replies, so oh, okay. chances are you get a Jordan at the end of the email. Uh, okay, great. <laughs> emails, so. uh, and, uh, keep them coming. Yeah, keep them coming, and we look forward to our season ahead. Yes. All right. Well, this has been Subject Matter Tabletop. I'm Steve Gossler. And I'm Jordan Tynes. We'll see you around the table.